Sorry. You're good. Morning. Mike, this is, I think it's okay. Thanks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 begins in darkness and in chaos. And that darkness and chaos motif circulates all through the biblical narrative, repeating, repeating over and over again. Darkness carries a symbolic meaning in the Bible. But it really, in almost any language, darkness is going to be used as a metaphor for, well, not in a favorable way, we could say. If I, if I say, I'm in the dark about this or that, what am I saying? I don't know something. I'm, I don't have all the pertinent details or things that I need to be able to understand it. If I say, the story was going great, and then it got really dark, what are we saying? We're not saying that in a positive way, are we? We're, we mean that things have, have gotten bad. Darkness is our way of describing pain and grief and confusion and desolation. And this is the pattern. In the beginning, there was chaos and there was darkness. But then God said, let's, we could actually all say it together. God said, <laughs> God created, interestingly enough, we may get into this one day if, if I screw my courage up, but uh, you know, interestingly enough, the sun is made three days later, but the light appears in this, in this narrative. In other words, God created uh, order and understanding and meaning and value to this world that he created, and he said, it is good, or you could say, it is finished. But sometime later, a man and a woman are standing in a garden and they've made the choice to reject the wisdom of God, the creator. They decided to be God themselves and live independently of the creator. And so the chaos and the darkness that God had banished returned, bringing death, which was the result of their rejecting God's wisdom. So chaos and darkness and death ruled the world. All of creation groaned in subjection to this hopeless desolation, the meaninglessness, the confusion, the sense of insignificance to it all. The history of the world became a history of conquest and subjugation of war and famine and plague. It's an ever-repeating pattern of chaos and darkness and death. Until one morning which we'll read about today, where the pattern broke, where light and life and a new order arose from the darkness and the chaos. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John this morning, and if you'd like to follow along with us, you can navigate to John chapter 20, please. We've been going through John's Gospel, and we're in the final parts of it. There's a breakdown of the structure of John in the back of your bulletin if you're interested in that. 
John's gospel, remember, we've said over and over, is different from the synoptic gospels because he's not just telling a chronological history of the events of Jesus' life. He's trying to reveal what those events mean and specifically what they mean to us. It's kind of musical, but... Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's 21st century. I know that's how that happens. So, but themes of we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through the Gospel of John over this past year or so. Themes of new creation play a huge role in, in John's Gospel, and right from the very first chapter uh, of his uh, account, uh, he's echoing back to the creation story in his opening line. Remember it from chapter one, verse one: "In the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was just like Genesis, and just like Genesis, light becomes a prominent symbol. John wrote in his opening, his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. He was letting us know that this story of Jesus is the story of new creation, launched as we get to the resurrection of Jesus. All through his gospel, he's been hinting at this idea, all of it, the the miracles and the healings and the restoration of the outsiders. All of it was meant to reveal what God is like and what it is that God's up to. And and what he was up to was redemption in all of this. All these healings that we've read about him doing, all of these inclusionary acts of kindness was all about redemption, making all things new. And all of these things, these themes that we've been tracing through this gospel crash together in new clarity in the section that we're going to be reading today. This is what everything's been leading up to. This is the high point of this entire series. When we left off, they had just buried Jesus, which was a section that's a, you know, I was hesitant. Uh, uh, Janelle did a great job of teaching on that the, the other day, uh, last week, not the other day. But, oh, you're way back there. I'm looking for you. Another, but, you know, you, I, I'm hesitant to try to, you know, have people dig into a passage. That's, that's just, I mean, that's a downer. I mean, this is like not a fun thing to preach on. But she did a great job, I felt like, and pointed out the, the Passover connection at his burial and the incredible loving way in which Jesus fulfilled that rescue. And so we left off. Remember, the religious leaders wanted Jesus taken off the cross uh, and buried before Sabbath, which is the seventh day, the last day of creation, the day of rest, which means that when we begin chapter 20, it is the first day of a, a new week, or we could say the first day of new creation. Not only that, but this was a Passover Sabbath, marking the beginning of Israel, God's covenant people. So think about what John's got going on in here. The two main events of the Old Testament, the creation story and the the creation of Israel are echoed in what we're about to read. A new creation and a new covenant people have now emerged in the the biblical narrative. So that's what we're going to be getting into. If you've got a Bible with you, if you've uh, gone to chapter 20, did I mention that to go to chapter 20 yet? Uh, If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you go to John chapter 20, this is where we're going to begin. We're going to start uh, in verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, and again, we get those Genesis vibes in this. The morning and the evening was the first day. So early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, 
She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, and he went in uh, and also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Okay, we'll stop here for a minute. So John's account of this event um, is unique in that it begins in the darkness like this. And, and all the themes that we were talking about from the creation account, the themes of darkness and chaos and death are present here. We've got the pre-dawn hour, the darkness, the confusion of what's taking place in the tomb itself representing death. And all of the gospel accounts uh, of the resurrection differ slightly. This was a, an unexpected thing that took place here. But one constant that we have through every account is that Mary Magdalene was there. This is only our second mention of her in John's gospel. From the other gospels, we know that she was part of the group that traveled with Jesus through all, all of his ministry up through Galilee. We know that she was someone who had been set free from demonic oppression and present there at the cross. But apart from that, we actually don't know anything uh, about her. I mean, sorry, Dan Brown, but we just don't. Uh, but we also know that she was here at the tomb uh, uh, in all of the Gospels. Now, in the other Gospels, she's with several other women. Um, I see no reason to, to believe that they're not here in the background, just not the focus of John's story. Because when she goes to talk to the disciples, she says, we don't know where they've taken him. In other words, the, you know, a group was there. So John doesn't say uh, why she was at the tomb. We know from the other gospel accounts there was this idea that they were going to uh, uh, continue the process of anointing the body. Um, but only when she gets there, things are not the same as they were when she left uh, before, the day before. It's, it's like the stage lights went out on a play, and when they come back up, the whole set has suddenly been rearranged. Mary sees the stone removed from the tomb, and so she runs back into town, and she reports to Peter and the DWJL, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm going to just call him John uh, for expediency's sake. Uh, all, most scholars believe that it was John, the one who wrote this gospel. Um, so he, she goes and she says, some mysterious they has taken the body uh, of Jesus and put it somewhere else. Now, who is they in her mind? It could be like a lot of different culprits. It could be the Romans. It could be the, the religious leaders. It, it could be grave robbers. Someone has tampered with their leader's corpse. And this prompts Pete and John to, to run back to the tomb. If you're an athlete, you'd love this section. There's more running in this section of the gospel than all of the others. But John gets to the tomb first. He doesn't go into the grave. Instead, he's scanning the scene, you know, making sure this is safe. He's like a good cop or whatever. But, but Peter True to the way that the Gospels always portray him, he just rushes right on in there, you know, whatever. Uh, now, first century tombs were, were low uh, and small. Peter would have had to stoop down to go in. So don't imagine him running straight in. He had to scoot his way in there. In the sides of the tomb and on the back, there would have been shelves 
carved in or ledges carved into the, the small cave area where the bodies would be set and then they would decompose. That's how first century burials worked. Uh, they would let the body decompose for a year, then they'd go in and they'd gather up the bones and they would put them in a stone ossuary, a stone box. We found many of those uh, in archaeological discoveries. But uh, then they would have taken those bones and stored them somewhere else or pretend, potentially stored them on one of the shelves in that uh, particular tomb. Jesus's body would have been on one of those shelves. We remember last week he was buried in a new tomb, which meant nobody else was in there. So it would have only have been Jesus. And, and the way that John describes the, the scene uh, of the empty grave clothes gives this impression of a pattern here. There's a, an order of events to it as we, as we contemplate it. The face cloth was separate and folded. Literally in the Greek, it was rolled into a loop. And this was the handkerchief that would have been tied around his head uh, first because, uh, you know, it kept the jaw from going slack on, you know, without anything animating the jaw to keep it closed. It would have gone slack. So they tied that in first. Then, then the body would have been packed with spices and they would have put a shroud over him and then wrapped that in strips of cloth and bound it up uh, tightly. So suddenly, as we're contemplating the way it's described here, a picture emerges that once this body is out of the grave clothes, the impression is the handkerchief was taken off last and placed down beside it separately, giving the sense of a reversal of how this all went on him, a reversal of the order of events of death. Death is now turning backwards. Jesus' resurrection has initiated a new creation, and this new creation comes with new patterns. It initiates new patterns for life. The destructive patterns of death and darkness can now be broken. The imagery of this account tells us that. Not that Peter and John understood any of that as they were examining that empty tomb. Verse 8 says John believed, but it doesn't say what he believed. Um, It could just mean that he believed Mary now. Oh, yeah, the grave is empty. but the, the language of it kind of connotes something deeper than that. So it could mean that a spark of hope ignited in him, that he believed that God may be up to something in this. But verses 9 and 10 make it clear that they didn't understand because they end up going home. Or literally, back to themselves, to a familiar place, back to what it was that they understood, back to familiar territory. You know, this is too often what we do when we're facing difficult circumstances or events in life that are hard to understand and that confuse us. We turn back to ourselves. We decide we're going to work this out in our own lives. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to rely on our own wisdom to find our way through the darkness. But the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. There is a new creation emerging right out of this broken world. There are new patterns to discover in him, not just to go back to the way things were, but to find these new patterns of life, new revelation about his will for our lives. There's life to be found in his purposes as we look to them, as we seek to discover them. That's what the resurrection means to us. These old patterns, these old habits of this formerly death-controlled life, those old systems and faulty definitions of who we are are to be replaced 
by this new creation, these new patterns of wholeness and life that are found in this resurrected Jesus, in the belief and the hope that we have that Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul said it so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So when the circumstances of life are are displaying the fallen patterns of chaos and darkness and death that we've been so familiar with, when we're hurt and we're confused and we're feeling hopeless, let's not fall back into old patterns of going back to self. Self-pity, self-will, self-indulgence. We need to remember that empty tomb. We need to remember the folded grave clothes. We need to look then for the new patterns of life that are found when we turn our attention to Jesus. New patterns of God's grace. We look to him. And how, Rob? Well, we go to his word. We look at his word. We spend time communicating with him, listening for him because the new creation is going to be found there in him and in following him his ways his priorities his purposes for life let's not give up when things go badly and the and the old patterns of brokenness are still here pressing in on us let's not give up and yield to the way things always had been let's remember there's a risen savior at work there's someone who broke these patterns and we can find a way to break them as well as we follow him and learn from him. Let's anticipate the power of new creation to emerge even in those difficult circumstances. There is order and God awareness and a whole life to be found when we focus on Jesus. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. This is John. Remember in the theater, spring and stuff? It was Jesus, but she didn't know it. <laughs> she didn't recognize him. Dear woman... Why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you put him. I'll go and get him. Okay, we'll stop there for just a moment. Mary must have followed Peter and and John uh, after to to the tomb and gotten there after they had already departed. It's hard to say. Either way, she's there at the tomb again, this time alone, and she's devastated. And you can imagine her thoughts. I mean, why? Why is this happening? How can I take any more pain? As if the weekend's events were bad enough. Now we come to this and it just gets worse and worse. And what are we going to do? How are we going to rectify this? The other gospel accounts mention angelic visits at the tomb. Uh, We could spend a lot of time on that, but just suffice it to say that it's there representing that heaven has now invaded this created space for humanity. And in the place, our last spot where we're all going to be is the place where heaven shows up first and foremost. God's presence uh, is there. But anyway, John includes uh, these angels as well 
It's hard to tell if Mary even knows that they're angels as you're reading this, because she talks to them as though they're just, you know, dudes hanging out in a grave. Uh, she doesn't ask what I would ask. I mean, I would be like, like, what are you doing in here? And how, how did you get here? Uh, uh, but she's so fixated on her problem of not knowing where the corpse of Jesus is that she can't seem to grasp that something else is unfolding all around her. The grave is still there, but it's taken on a new meaning altogether. Heaven has invaded that grave because of the resurrection, and now everything that she's going to experience has to be reinterpreted in light of that. Christ's resurrection changed the stage. This is new creation, and that means that our normal assumptions have to yield to all the possibilities that are present in new creation moving into this world. The angels even ask her why she's so upset. They're kind of giving her a hint that sorrow is the wrong response to what it is that she's, she's witnessing here. And her answer shows she's still operating on her assumptions about what's happening. Jesus is dead, and now the corpse is gone, and everything is hopeless. And I could maybe fix it if you just clue me in on where I can go and take care of this. I don't even know what she's thinking she's going to do. But either way, in so many ways, she stands in for all of humanity after the fall here. When she answers they've taken away, we could insert all of the laments of humanity after the fall. They've taken away my dignity. They've taken away my family. They've taken away my job. They've taken away my health, my hope, my life. They took it away. They've taken away my Lord. And the world's grief gets concentrated in Mary's grief. And then she turns around and she sees someone else. And again, she rests on her assumptions. She identifies him in her mind as the gardener. Why? Why was he the gardener? Like, maybe he was wearing a blue shirt with a little logo on it. Galilee lawn care or something. I don't know. She assumes he's the gardener and she's wrong. But she's also right. Janelle pointed out the significance last week of Jesus being buried in a garden. And here we've come full circle from our opening. And here is a man and a woman standing in a garden. And now death is not waiting in the wings to swallow them up. Now life has fully bloomed in this place. He is the new Adam, a new gardener of the new creation, come to uproot and carry away the thorns on his own brow and replace them with blossoms and harvests of hope. And he asks the same question. Why are you crying? And then he expounds on it. Who do you seek? Who are you looking for? But again, she launches into her complaint, you know, reasserting her assumptions about what's going on. She's looking for a corpse to grieve over when the answer to her grieving is standing right next to her. How often we do the same thing in life. We get so obsessed about our pain or the source of our pain or our problems or the darkness of our circumstances. We get so obsessed with our own grief that we fail to leave room for all of the possibilities that resurrection inherently bring with them. 
We need to keep in mind that empty tomb when we face the difficulties of life. Listen, I don't want to be a triumphalist here. I don't want to be um, unrealistic in this. I know that things still hurt. I know that the, the patterns of brokenness and chaos and darkness and death are still present in this broken world, and it's painful. We can't help that we feel that pain. There are still graves, but heaven has invaded, and that means all kinds of possibilities now exist. Resurrection provides the possibility of a future for people who had lost hope, who felt like there was nothing to do and nowhere else to go. Where would the disciples go when their hopes were shattered at the cross, when they saw their Savior gasp out his last breath? Where do we go when, when the marriage is dead or the job is gone or when calamity strikes and we wonder, is there going to be any kind of a tomorrow for me? When our hopes are ruined and our dreams seem to have died, can anyone redeem it? The resurrection and the new creation gives us God's yes to that question. In the face of life's darkest moments, yes is his answer. There is hope. Yes, there is a tomorrow. Something better is on the way. And this is the challenge of life for us in the era of Jesus' resurrection. Because that's what we were born into. We may think, I was born here or there and in this town or in this culture, in this community. Where we were born is in the era of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means anything is possible. We have to learn to let go of our assumptions of hopelessness and yield to the possibilities of resurrection. That God can do all things. Not that he's our genie. Not that we walk around and make our wishes that he grants. But oh, the overwhelming hope that can allow us as frail human beings to stare down death and say it's going to be all right. There is a resurrected Savior waiting in the wings. Okay, well, finishing up here, verse 16. (laughs) I felt myself getting a little emotional here, and we need to move on. She thinks it's the gardener. Verse 16. Mary. Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to my father, to the father. But go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. We pass over that way too quickly. Mary Magdalene found the other disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. And that's where we're going to stop today. Mary, she didn't recognize Jesus. You know, uh, that happens in most of the resurrection accounts in the gospel. One of those things that I find marvelous and uh, it, it authenticates the whole thing. There's the, this level of confusion that surrounds all of this, that, that you know, this unthinkable event. Uh, there's something about him that seems to be very different. So he's not recognized all that easily. Uh, but when he calls her by name, everything changes. 
And that's, boy, that's a whole teaching in itself. I wish, you know, but what, what a moment that must have been for her. He's not dead, and he still knows her name. She recognizes his voice, just like Jesus said his sheep would back in John chapter 10. And now if I were writing this, this is where, I mean, they would high five and it would freeze frame and the credits would roll and upbeat music would be playing and we'd feel really good. But, but uh, it doesn't happen that way. This strange thing happens here where, where apparently, based on what he says, she's clinging to him, which, man, we can understand that, Right. I mean, like, this is a huge turn of events in a very positive way. I mean, I, I, you know, the joy and the amazement and love. I mean, she's just wrapping him up and grabbing him and just going to drink in the wonder of this moment here. But he says, let go of me. <laughs> I'm ascending to the Father, but oh, this part, who is also your Father. All through it, he's been speaking of his Father. Something's changed fundamentally right here who's also your father, my God, who's also your God. You know, him saying, don't cling to me, isn't like he doesn't like Mary. <laughs> like, get off of me. It's not that. It's not that he was doing anything wrong. Most believe, and really, honestly, guys, be careful. People have gone into weird territories in, in, in trying to interpret this. Most conservative scholars agree that this is Jesus letting Mary know that things are going to be different now. It's not so much that he's, you know, untouchable or something. In other words, he's saying, don't try to cling to me right here, Mary, because things are going to be different. I'm on the move here. I can't stay here. I got things to do, but I'm elevating you. You aren't the same anymore either. Now you have God as your father. Resurrection changed everything. The new creation The new creation is not about setting everything back to some happy point in the past. The new creation is always moving forward and expanding as it goes. It's very possible that Mary was just trying to hang on to Jesus in hopes that everything would go back to the way that it used to be. We're going to go kicking around Galilee again. It's going to be great. The gang will be back together. The band is reformed. We're going to, you know, just go do all this cool stuff we were doing But one writer said this, and I wish I could give you the attribution. I don't know who it was. Following Jesus is a never-ending process of losing him the moment we we think we have him captured, only to discover him in some new and even more unimaginable form. Jesus isn't content to just stay locked in that moment, to stay locked in history any more than he's going to stay locked in a tomb. And realizing this helps us to temper that very human impulse to long for the way that things used to be. If we could just get back to what that was. Oh, if we could just recapture this or that golden moment. The past is gone, and resurrection doesn't change that. So we can't cling to the hope that Jesus is going to take us back to the way things were at some happy moment in our life. Because the way out of darkness is only by moving ahead is going through, is moving forward. And the only person who can lead the way is a Savior who overcame the darkness, whose light the darkness could not extinguish. Now, after the resurrection, things do not return to pre-resurrection normality. As a matter of fact, nothing's normal again. That's the good news. It's, it's, It's basic to everything that the New Testament proclaims. 
There's there's not going to be this old normal. After seeing a risen Jesus, we see that normal's done. It's gone. We can't even we can't even think that graves are reliable anymore. I mean, all we know for sure is that a risen Savior is now on the loose, working his way through this world, restoring and redeeming and making all things new. And he knows our names, just like he knew Mary's name. I love how in every account of the resurrection, Mary is there. In John's account, she is the first commissioned minister. Jesus gives her the first gospel message and tells her to go and share it with his brothers. He even makes that denotation there of gender. Go tell my brothers. Jesus didn't go himself to tell them. He taught them through her. And that is bold. I mean, this is, this is huge. The, the testimony of a woman in the ancient world in which this was written was, you know, the ancient patriarchal world, it was, it was not admissible. I mean, you couldn't, a woman couldn't testify in court. I don't know if you know that, but she couldn't because her, her, her testimony wasn't admissible because you know, she's a woman. You know, that's how they viewed it. This would have put her out of her place in society. I mean, she could have said, you know, Jesus, I would, I would, but I'm unqualified. I mean, you know, you know how things work. I'd like to do it, do it Jesus, but I'd just rather prefer to, to have this message in my heart and just trust that everybody's going to figure it out. Uh, I'd do it, Jesus. I'd tell them that, but, you know, they're going to, these dudes are going to accuse me of having the vapors if I go in there with, with that. So you think about this. The future of the church rested on her shoulders in that moment. Peter and Philip and Paul and Athanasius and Luther and all the familiar proclamations that we pin all of our doctrines on, all of these proclamations of the good news that would be made were set to start with her. Thank God for Mary Magdalene. Thank God for her. Thank God she was faithful to go and tell the good news despite the risk. Thank God for all of those who share that news. Thank God for the preacher that shared that good news with my dad and my mom. And thank God for my brother who shared that good news with me. And I thank God for my children who also believe and carry this on. I thank God for my daughter who shares the good news with me and after me, taking her place in this line as new creation expands into this world. Thank God for all of us because we're all called to take this good news of new creation into this dark and broken world and bring the light of hope and love and eternal life. Thank God for this. Resurrection marks a new beginning in Christ. So let's look to Christ to bring order and revelation and wholeness to us in our lives, but also to others in the lives of those that we do life with, in the world where we've been placed. Let's allow the hope of resurrection to shape all of our understanding about our experiences in life. Everything that we face, no matter how painful, still carries with it the signal of resurrection and the hope that that implies. Let's be bold enough then to share this good news with others 
that Jesus is alive. And best of all, he knows our names. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me as you're able to. Father, we thank you so much for your word that reveals to us resurrection. We thank you for the hope that's implicit in that. We thank you, Lord God, that you're making all things new and that you've begun this work in our hearts. Help us, Father, to embrace it. Help us, Father, to immerse ourselves in the wonder of that and let that resurrection hope shape the people that we are. Help us to represent this rightly into this world. We thank you, Father, for all that you do. We place ourselves in your hands and we trust you, Lord. Bring resurrection hope to bear in our lives and help us represent it. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Father, for this hope. Lord, we can gather on a Sunday morning like this and feel ourselves charged and excited, but then we're going to face that world out there, Lord. And things get different. You know that about us. Your grace covers that. Father, I just pray that you will plant something in our hearts this morning. Plant it deep. Bring it to blossom. Bring it to bloom. As we're out in this in this very difficult world. Help us, Father. 
not just to find that hope in our own lives, but help us be emissaries. Help us to share that hope in the boldness that Mary had. Lead us into that kind of resurrection life, Father. We pray that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.